Well, you might have noticed this week that there was an election, and um, you probably picked up that Boris Johnson won the election. And um, having won the election, um, he gave a couple of speeches, and in one of the speeches, he said this, I want to thank you for the trust you have placed in us and in me, and we will work round the clock to repay your trust and deliver on your priorities. Now, you may be pleased or not pleased about Boris Johnson winning the election. I, I guess there's a mixture of feelings here about that. But it's typical, isn't it, um, when someone wins an election, you start thinking, well, they've made all these amazing promises. Are they now going to deliver on them? Have, have we put our trust in them, and are they going to prove faithful to that trust? And, and trust was a big issue, wasn't it, in the election? Um, some people say that the reason the Labour Party um, didn't do so well was because um, people didn't believe or trust in the promises they were making. Um, Whereas well, maybe they do trust Boris Johnson to, to live a Brexit, at least. Um, trust is an important issue, um, and we need to trust that promises will come forward. But when we come to an election, it's just a matter of putting your cross on a bit of paper in a polling booth, and you know that your vote is just one amongst millions and probably won't make that much of a difference um, to the whole thing. But when it comes to Christianity, God is inviting us to put our trust in him. But this is an issue not just of who's going to be in power for the next five years and what influence I can have on that. But actually, it's an issue about can I trust my whole life, my very being, to what's being said here and what's being done here. It's a much bigger issue. And so, as you think about um, who should you follow in life, what religion might you come through? You might look at the promises of Islam, the promises of Buddhism, the promises of Hinduism, or the promises of no religion at all, and think, well, which of those do I think is true? Which of those do I think will deliver on the promises? And you might choose whichever one you want. But Matthew, in writing his gospel, wants us, wants us to choose Christianity. He wants us to see that Jesus is God's special son and that we can put our trust in him. We can actually trust our whole lives to him. And remember Matthew, when he first wrote the gospel, wrote it at a time when to become a Christian was to put yourself in danger of quite serious persecution. Matthew was probably written in the 60s AD, uh, and about halfway through the 60s AD, um, in Rome, if you're a Christian, um, Nero had a great persecution of Christians there, blaming them for the fire of Rome, and many of them were killed in quite horrendous ways. To put your trust in Jesus was to say that, Jesus, I'm willing to die for you because I trust that you will deliver on your promises for a relationship with God that will last for eternity. And to be part of a kingdom that will be an eternal kingdom. I trust that you will deliver on that and I'm willing to risk my very life, my very being, to trust you for that. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had um, a talk here from um, a guy who was a curate at a local church um, up at St. Philip's. He's now moved on. A guy called Actin. I remember his name, Captain Actin. Works quite well, but he wasn't a captain, but he was called Actin. Um, and Actin was has Iranian background, so he grew up in Iran and he grew up as a Muslim. And when he was um, student age, he went to Armenia um, to study at university there. And when he was there, um, someone spoke to him about God and gave him a copy of Matthew's Gospel. And Aptin said he read through the gospel just in a matter of a day or so. 
and as a result of reading the gospel, decided that he would risk his life and commit himself to follow Jesus. Now, to be a Christian in Iran, and particularly to convert from Islam to Christianity in Iran, is a dangerous thing. Um, not only is Iran a, a Muslim republic, where Islam is part of the whole raison d'etre of the states, but also they see Christianity in a very bad light because it's um, very much associated with America and America's Iran's arch enemy. It's not just an issue of religion, it's an issue of nationality, it's an issue of politics, it's an issue of security to them. So to be a Christian in Iran, and particularly to convert from Islam to Christianity in Iran, is a dangerous thing to do. Um, people aren't often killed, but they're often locked up for it. And for Aptin, it really meant that he couldn't go back to Iran, he couldn't go back to his homeland, he couldn't go back to his family. And so he ended up living in this country. And now he's a vicar somewhere else. I can't remember exactly where. But reading Matthew's Gospel, he decided that he could trust his life in Jesus. Now you might think, well, if, I, if you gave me Matthew's Gospel and I started with chapter 1, um, I'd probably be put off straight away. Um, you don't read many novels, do you? You start with a list of 41 different names that are hard to pronounce. Um, it's not a good way to draw someone in. Um, and it seems a very strange way for us um, to start your gospel in that way. Um, why is Matthew doing this? What, why start the whole New Testament even with this long list of names? What's going on here? How does this genealogy um, really help us? Well, actually, it's really crucial that we understand what's going on here because Matthew's teaching us quite a lot through this long list of names. You might notice, I mean, verse 1, it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus who's the Christ, or the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And right at the beginning, um, Matthew pinpoints the two key characters in the whole genealogy, Abraham and David. Um, and as you go through the genealogy, you see it starts with Abraham, and um, then David's highlighted because he calls him King David. He's the only one that's called a king, even though the next 14 or so after him are all kings. Um, and then the next change is about where it says talks about the exile to Babylon in verse 11 and 12. And in verse 17, um, Matthew tells us the structure that he's giving to this genealogy. So he says there's 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Messiah. And so Matthew's saying that as you look back over the history of God's people, all the way from Abraham where it all started, where God started making these promises, um, you can break it down into three basic eras. Abraham to David, David to the exile, and the exile to Christ. And if you want rough dates, we can't be sure about Abraham, but some people say 1750 BC. Um, David was about 1000 BC. The exile was about 600 BC. And of course, Christ was born about 4 BC. Apparently, it's not a naught BC. I don't know how that works, but um, roughly about that time. Um, so you see that broken down the whole history of Israel in that way. And if you want to understand the Bible, you might think the Bible is a big book and there's lots in it. If you want to understand the Bible, you really need to understand this framework. Um, Abraham to David is really important. David to the exile is really important. And the exile to Christ really is the period that's more or less in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, although the first bit comes in some parts of the Old Testament. But the other key to taking point, take into account, and this is why Abraham, David, and the exile are important, is because those are the moments 
that God makes really important and big promises. He makes amazing promises to Abraham. And then the whole story from Abraham to David is really about him fulfilling those promises. The Bible is saying to us, you can trust God, you can trust him to deliver on what he promises, because if you look at the history over hundreds of years, even over millennia, you see that he's delivered on those promises. And when we think about politicians, we think, well, is Boris Johnson going to deliver on his promises over the next five years? Maybe, maybe not. But what we're talking about with God is him delivering on his promises throughout history. What Matthew's doing in this genealogy is reminding us that God is the God who delivers, and we'll see exactly how he does that in a moment. And then David's important because David's given an amazing promise as well, which is really important to driving the rest of the story forward in, in, in the Old Testament. And then at the exile, when Israel were um, basically destroyed by the Babylonian Empire and people were taken from Jerusalem and the area around and taken to, to Babylon um, to be in exile, and then they were allowed to return about 70 years later, well, during that time, that's when a lot of the major prophets of Israel were talking and they made some incredible promises as well. And again, those promises are what carry over and are important um, for, for the New Testament and for Christ. So let's dive in, let's dig deeper and see what's going on here. First of all, Abraham um, to David. Thank you. Uh, and the promise God makes to Abraham um, is basically the key promises in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And we've got verse 3 on your notice sheets. But verse 2 says this, Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And as you read on through the following chapters, God gives a bit more detail about how he's going to make Abraham into a great nation. First of all, he promises Abraham that he would have lots and lots of descendants. That there would be as many descendants as stars in the sky as um, grains of sand on the seashore. He promises Abraham that they, they would live in a promised land. Um, the land of Canaan, the land of Palestine. And he promises Abraham that they would become a great nation. And those promises are crucial because over the next few books of the Bible, actually all the way up to David, we see bit by bit how God fulfills those promises to Abraham. The whole story is really driven by these promises. The whole story is showing us that God fulfills his promises. God delivers on his promises. Um, and to start with, things get off to a very shaky start. Abraham is an old guy and he's got no children. Uh, now, if you know anything about biology, you know to have lots of descendants, you need a child. <laughs> okay? Um, you, your family tree doesn't get very far if there's no son or no daughter. Um, Abraham tries to force the issue a little bit, one or two slightly dodgy ways, but God says, no, it's going to be through your wife, through Sarah. Uh, and when they're really old and really past it and really knackered, God says, actually now you will have a child. Sarah laughs. Nine months later, Isaac comes along. They call him Isaac because Isaac means laughter. A child is born. It's a shaky start, but it's one child. Things are beginning to move on. The promises can still be delivered, although it's not looking very likely. Uh, and then Isaac uh, marries Rebecca, and um, things don't start off very well there. They struggle to have children as well. When they do have children, Rebecca has twins, and God says, actually, it'll only be through one of the twins that my descendants will go through, and that twin is Jacob. Um, so again, it's a bit shaky, just one person now, it's a very thin line, I'm meant to be as many descendants, 
But in the story of Jacob, you may know, um, he's later on called Israel, who the name of Israel comes from, he manages to have 12 children, 12 sons, which is really things begin to improve here. Anyone got 12 sons here? I know one or two have got five, and that's impressive, but five children, but 12 is quite amazing, isn't it? He did have four wives, which wasn't particularly right, but God used it anyway. Um, so he had 12 sons, and if you look at in Matthew here, when he mentions Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers, that's that reference to the 12 sons, and they became the, the um, ancestors of the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, and Judah was one of those. Uh, and so things really started getting going, and um, the family really began to grow, and so by the time that they went to Egypt to escape from a famine, you know, the story of Joseph, um, there were about 70 odd of them. And then in Egypt, they were uh, multiplying and multiplying so much so that the Egyptians were getting worried about how many there were of them. God's promise of lots of descendants was being fulfilled. Tick to number one. But now things are looking shaky, not because they haven't got lots of descendants, but because they're actually in the wrong place. Um, they're in Egypt. And worse than that, they're now slaves of the Egyptians. God had promised them to be a great nation. God had promised them to live in the promised land, but they're living in Egypt and they're in slavery. How on earth is God going to sort this out? And you might know the story of Exodus and God works in amazing ways, um, completely miraculous and powerful ways to defeat the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to force him to let those slaves, those Israelites, to go out of Egypt and go towards the promised land. And so God brings them out of the promised land, sorry, brings them out of Egypt they cross over the Red Sea, um, they escape from the Egyptians, and then they're into, into the wilderness. Then God helps them survive in the wilderness for 40 years, uh, all under the leadership of Moses. And then when Moses dies, um, Joshua takes over, and Joshua leads them into the Promised Land. Um, they know the story of the Battle of Jericho, that's the first battle that happened. Um, they defeat lots of kings, and so finally, Israel are settled in the Promised Land. But still things aren't quite up to God's promise. Yes, they're in the promised land, tick. Yes, they're the main power in that land, tick. But they're not a great nation. They're not secure. For hundreds of years, they're just this group of 12 tribes that are loosely connected uh, and often completely oppressed or in, um, in destroyed by invading other nations. They're not a great nation. And then towards the end of that period, after about hundreds of years, God raises up first, agrees to have a king, and first you get the king Saul, and he does some work to try and um, stop, particularly the Philistines at that time, invading them. Um, but Saul's a bit dodgy, he's not really doing what God says, so God says, actually, I'm going to go for someone who's really going to be after my own heart. And so then, he anoints David to be the king. Um, David starts well by defeating Goliath, you know that story? Um, then Saul gets very jealous, so David has to go into hiding for several years, but when Saul gets killed... Finally, David becomes king of Israel. He captures Jerusalem, a city that held out against the Israelites for hundreds of years, now becomes the capital city of Israel. And he, builds it, and he prepares to build the temple there. He makes it his capital. He has victory against all the surrounding nations. Suddenly, under David, Israel becomes a great nation. Tick. God's promises to Abraham have been fulfilled. You see how the story of the Bible is driven by these promises to Abraham. And again and again, the story is saying to us, God can deliver on his promises. And so when Matthew lists um, those names at the beginning of chapter 1, from verses 1 to 6, 
those first 14 names, he's saying, remember. Remember how the history of Israel worked. Remember how God made promises to Abraham and God fulfilled those promises to Abraham. He will deliver. You can trust him. But actually, Matthew's saying, things are moving on. You see, God didn't just promise Abraham that his descendants would be blessed. He also promised Abraham that through him, the world will be blessed. Um, verse 3 of chapter 12 says this. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And Matthew, I think, is hinting at that promise. Because it's going to be really important in Matthew's gospel. And you might have noticed that in the first um, six verses, um, as you expect, the names or the men going through the list, and you might think that's a bit sexist, um, but that was quite normal of the day. But actually he mentions some of the mothers as well. He picks out um, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah. Why does he pick these four women out? There's a lot of debate about that. Um, some people say well, they're all a bit dodgy sexually. Um, certainly three of them are. Um, Tamar seduced her father-in-law by pretending to be a prostitute. Interesting story. Um, Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho that hid the spies. Um, and Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, was the one that had an adulterous affair with David. And so David tried to cover it up by killing Uriah. So they're all, so Ruth we're not so sure about, that's debatable. So maybe sexual um, indiscretions are a problem. Um, they're all widows. Um, so Tamar's first husband died, and then a second and third husband, I'm not going to that. Um, Rahab, well, Rahab we don't know is a widow, Ruth we know is a widow, and Uriah was a widow because David killed her husband. Oh, sorry, Bathsheba was a widow because Uriah was killed by David. Um, but actually what's noticeable about them, and particularly the fact he mentions the name of Uriah rather than the name of Bathsheba, is that they're all non-Jews. Tamar was probably a Canaanite. Rahab, we know, lived in Jericho and was a Canaanite. She was the only one, her family was the only one to survive the Battle of Jericho. Ruth, we know, um, wasn't a Jew, and Uriah, we're told, was a Hittite, and he wasn't a Jew. I think the main reason that Matthew's included these names in the list, and he's had to add them in if you compare the list with other lists in the Old Testament, is because he wants to say that God allows non-Jews into his people. Um, they, have, they come in by faith. Each of these showed a real faith and a real commitment to God's people. But God is saying, look, he wants to include not just the Jews, but non-Jews as well. He wants to bring blessing through Abraham to the whole world. And as you read through Matthew's Gospel, you see that Matthew keeps hinting that, that what Jesus is about is bringing that ultimate fulfillment to that promise to Abraham to bless the whole world. So we've got these women in, in, the first, in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. Who is it that comes to see Jesus? It's none of the Jews. It's the Magi, the wise men from, from far away. Uh, in Romans chapter 8, a centurion comes to Jesus uh, and says, Jesus, can you heal my servant? Just say the word and it will happen. Um, I know that because I'm, I'm a commander. Uh, and I have power and people do what I say. You have power. You're, you're this amazing person. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus said... This man has incredible faith. This Roman. He has more faith than anyone I've met in Israel. I, I tell you, at the end of time, many from Israel will be cut out, but, but these, these people from around the world, from the east and the west and the north and the south, will come and sit at the feast of Abraham. 
This is blessing through Abraham for the whole world. And of course, right at the end of Matthew's Gospel, what does Jesus tell his disciples to do, having died and risen again? He says in Matthew 28, verse 19, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Matthew, right at the beginning here, is hinting that God is fulfilling Abraham's promises even more in Jesus. And part of that fulfilment is God going out to all the nations. Well, that's the promises to Abraham. Um, Let's move on to the promise to David. We said that the story of the Bible gets to David and the promises to Abraham are fulfilled. Um, And as as David's sitting there, he's comfortable, he's um, in charge, he's ruler. Um, God makes an amazing promise to him through Nathan the prophet. And he says to him this. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And this was a really important promise for the Jewish people. Because they saw that God had promised that David's descendants will always be the one who will rule on the throne. Now, I don't know, do you know the longest lasting dynasty in the world? A dynasty is a sort of family of kings and queens going down. Um, it's the, you know? No, it's Japanese actually. The Yakota dynasty has been in power since 600 or so BC. So that's quite a long time. <laughs> uh, the longest dynasty in England was the Plantagenets. Anyone remember them? Anyone old enough? <laughs> um, they, they, they were, um, they, the last one was Richard III. You know, my, my horse, my horse, the kingdom for my horse. He was the last one. And then the two just took over. Um, but it went right back to the, the 12th century. So from the 12th century to the 15th, 14th century, about 300 years or so, the Plantagenets were the longest in this country. Well, David's dynasty lasted... Um, as, as, a, as an actual dynasty ruling with someone sitting on the throne in, in Jerusalem historically, um, lasted 400 years. So longer than any of the English dynasties, um, but not the longest in the world. Uh, and that's quite impressive. And actually, if you look down the list, particularly from verse um, 6 through to verse 11, to the exile to Babylon, you see a list of 14 names there, and all of those are kings. They're all kings that sat on the throne in Jerusalem. And so in a way, this sort of shows how God's amazing promise to David was fulfilled in in quite an amazing way to see all these kings on the throne all the way down for 400 years. Um, Actually, he's missed one or two out to try and fit 14 in there. There's actually 17 or 18, but we won't go into that. Um, um, So, so yeah, amazing. God fulfilled his promise. His dynasty lasted in an amazing way. But then there was a problem. And you see, this is why the exile was such a big thing. Because at the exile, the Babylonians came, Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor, came, uh, and he took away the people from um, Jerusalem, and he destroyed any David Davidic king reigning in Jerusalem. From that point on, there was no longer a king in Jerusalem. Uh, and all that was from David. And although God did amazing things and allowed them after only 70 years um, to come back to Jerusalem, and allow them to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and to be in the promised land, this promise to David seems to have been lost. Israel did have kings, but they were really puppet kings of bigger empires. First the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greek empires, and then finally the Romans. They weren't descendants of David's. And so Israel had this longing, a longing that was um, kept being prompted by the prophets that were um, at the time of the exile and before um, 
saying that God would bring about the Davidic king again, that there would be a Davidic king on the throne in Israel, that God's promise to David wouldn't disappear. And actually in chapter 2 of Matthew, um, you've got that promise from Micah that's told to the wise men, but you, Bethlehem, that's where David was born, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. In other words, it's promised that this Davidic king would come linked to Bethlehem because I'm of David's. And so God's making, God's promise to David, Matthew is saying, along with everyone else, is saying it is going to be fulfilled, but it's fulfilled ultimately through Jesus. Jesus is going to bring about this eternal kingdom that truly fulfills the promise to David. And Jesus, when he comes, calls himself the Son of Man. It's a hint at a passage in Daniel chapter 7. Um, And in Daniel chapter 7, it says this about the Son of Man. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Matthew wants to make clear that Jesus was a son of David. He uses the phrase ten times in the Gospel, and Mark and Luke is only used four times. Um, He wants to say Jesus fulfills this promise. Jesus is God bringing about his promises, making them happen. And how does Jesus fulfill the promise? Well, usually when a king dies, that's when the rule is over. But when Jesus died on the cross, they put above his head, king of the Jews. Because actually when he died on the cross, is when he became king. And that was shown by the fact that three days later he rose from the dead. And what does he say to his disciples after he's risen from the dead? Matthew 28, verse 18, says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I now have that rule, that authority that was promised to David. David has someone on the throne for eternity through Jesus. So, we on the next slide. So, in this passage, you see, Matthew's trying to say to us, God makes promises, God fulfills promises, but actually Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. Why does um, Matthew fit the 14 generations? What's special about 14? There's a whole number of theories. Come along this evening, I'll I'll share a few more, but I think the most impressive one is this. Um, 14, if you're good at math, you'll know is 2 times 7. Do you know that? Remember your times tables? Um, So if you think about it, um, the first era, the first 14 generations, that's two lots of seven. The second area, that's number two lots of seven. The third area, that's number two lots of seven. Um, that's how many sevens? Six, six lots of sevens, good. Um, now, what Matthew's trying to say here is we've had six lots of sevens, now we're into a new era. Now Christ has come, we're into a new era, and it's the seventh era. The seventh lots of sevens. And seven in the Bible is a, a number that talks about fulfillment, about completeness. You think about the... the the creation. Six days God created, then it was finished, then on the seventh day he rested. So you see what Matthew's trying to do with his structure? He's saying, look, you've had six lots of sevens, now Christ has come, God's promises are fulfilled, and now the blessings can really begin to flow. 
You can put your trust in Jesus. You can give your life to Jesus. You can risk your life on Jesus because he is the one who, through him, God is delivering on his promises. It says in 2 Corinthians, um, chapter 1, verse 20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. So will you trust in God's deliver? Will you trust that in Christ he has fulfilled his promises? He's bringing his blessings. And in him you can have eternal life. In him you can have a relationship with God. In him you can have your sins wiped away. Let's pray.